Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Knockham Siegel Network, knockhamsegal.com. And welcome to another Thursday evening of political talk as we approach Election Day. We approach the holidays, but then we go straight into Election Day. As always, we're happy to be sponsored, proud to be sponsored by Beckerman. Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And we got a great show coming up. A lot of different topics, a lot going on here locally, nationally. We're going to little, we've done the local focus. We did the New York focus. And for those of you out there who are not New Yorkers, it's important that we, you know, you know, spread our wings a little bit. So we're going to talk about Congress. So we're going to talk about the congressional election, but we're going to specifically talk about the Jewish angle here, the decline of Jewish representation in Congress, some heavy hitters. Some of the deans of the congressional delegation are going to be exiting. So we're going to talk to Ron Campius of JTA. And we're also going to be talking later on in the show the courting of the Jews from unexpected quarters in the Republican Party. So first and foremost, we are going to talk. We have on the line Aaron Weeder. Aaron Weeder, the majority leader of the Rockin County Legislature, just conceded a Democratic primary for state assembly in the 98th Assembly District, which some might call the Super Hasidic District, encompasses Hasidic areas of both Rockland as well as the Village of Curious Joel in Orange County. And Aaron is, unfortunately, I guess, is not, did not make it past the finish line, came short by about 100 votes and conceded the race very, but he was profiled in the New York Times as potentially the, to be the first Hasidic state legislator. And now, uh, we, he still goes back to the Rockland County legislature. And as our frequent commentator and good friend, former assemblyman Ryan Carbon said that the 98th assembly district might not today be represented by a Hasidic legislator, but eventually it will be represented by a Hasidic legislator. Aaron Weeder, thanks for joining us once again on spin class. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. So uh, you conceded the, uh, yesterday or the day before, came up a little bit short, but I think by all accounts, you ran a great campaign and uh, even one that was really profile and got some national attention. Tell us about a little bit about the campaign running for assembly, a little, uh, little different than running uh, back in the Shtetl of Muncie, correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, the race was uh, very exciting. Uh, I think it's an honor to be on the ballot and your name up there and and have fellow citizens uh, vote for you uh, is a tremendous honor to get elected. It's a tremendous honor to serve people. As a grandson of Holocaust survivors, of uh, my grandparents who fled uh, uh, Europe and, you know, being persecuted to come to the United States and have that opportunity as a Hasidic person, uh, it's just so exciting and so thrilling. And what really, really surprised me was... I ran a very grassroots campaign, uh, focused mostly in Rockland County, in uh, mostly in the uh, my legislative district that overlaps the 98th Assembly District. But I did do a very soft reach out to people throughout the entire district, the 98th Assembly District, and surprisingly enough, I got uh, a huge amount of voters in Orange County outside of KJ. Uh, all the pundits said that a Hasidic person is not going to be able to get any votes uh, in Orange County. And I got a surprisingly high number, a very huge percentage, about 10% of the Orange County vote I got. Well, that, that's very interesting. That definitely defies the conventional wisdom. But you bring up a good point here that it, at least uh, on paper, or I guess from the returns, the Hasidic leadership of Curious Joel did not support you, in fact, supported your opponent who eventually won. That is correct. Okay, and does that, the kind of thing that when you, if and when you run again two years from now, that you you feel that you're able to surmount? Well, look, two years is a very long time, and it could be a very short time. Lots of things can happen from now. Uh, to two years. Uh, I have to run for the legislature again next year. So that's something I have to be focused on. Uh, I, I'm going to uh, 
have to finish to serve my term in the legislature, which I'm going to focus to serve my constituents and uh, to do the best job that I can. Uh, what's going to be in two years from now, it's, uh, it's going to be it's very difficult to foresee. There is going to be a general election. depends who's going to be the ultimate uh, candidate, the Republican or the Democrat, or perhaps even there's a third candidate running, and that's from the United Monroe um, Party. So it, 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 it remains to be seen. There's still going to be a general election. And who knows? Maybe there's going to be other opportunities. It doesn't have to be the assembly. Maybe I could run for something else. You know, for now, I really thank all the people that voted for me and those who didn't vote for me and just simply came out and participated in this great uh, uh, democracy by coming out of vote. I really don't understand how people take this for granted. But uh, yeah, the turnout think, was extraordinarily light, I, if, if you think about it. I, uh, assembly District has about 150,000 people, and uh, the registered voters, I think you, you lost by 100 votes, but the spread was like 1,100 to 1,000. I mean, you're talking about I, a very small I amount of voters. I lost by 60 votes. I 60 votes, 60 okay. Votes after, after the absentees. They, after they opened the absentees, I only lost by 60 votes. Uh, there was a to- there was a third candidate that ran too, so it wasn't it was a total of about thirty five to four thousand people. I, I didn't look at the final tally. Uh, there were many undervotes and overvotes. Uh, there were many people who came out to vote in, in in the gubernatorial race, but didn't take a stand on the assembly race. So I don't know the uh, total turnout, but it certainly was low. You know, there are low turnouts in the uh, in the primaries. That's that's just a given. Um, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Speaking of just the Democrats voting in the Hudson Valley, uh, Zephyr Teachout did incredibly well throughout the Hudson Valley compared to in the, in the Democratic primary compared to Governor Cuomo. In fact, Zephyr Teachout would have won the Orange County where you ran, uh, where you ran on the ballot as well without the support. If she hadn't had Cuomo not had the support of Curious Joel. So uh, so, what do you attribute that to? Well, look, I was focused on my race. I didn't really look at the uh, gubernatorial race. I didn't even look at the numbers. Uh, the things that you're telling me right now is news to me. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Governor Como um, had a primary that lots and lots of people, uh, pundits, didn't anticipate a half a year ago. Uh, so uh, certainly there is uh, lots of uh, things to take away from this uh, gubernatorial race, and I'm sure that the governor's people uh, are uh, doing that as we speak. But, sure. uh, yeah, it was an interesting race. So Aaron, we're talking to Aaron Weeder, the majority leader of the Rockland County Legislature, legislature who just ran for state legislator in the 98th Assembly District and uh, came out just a little bit short for the Democratic nomination. Uh, who are you going to support, Aaron, in the general election? I had a very good conversation with Elisa Tatini uh, last night. In fact, it was the second time that I'd spoken to her. I met her once when she came down to the Democratic Convention in Rockland County. Uh, and uh, I'm really, really looking forward to uh, meeting her on her campaign trail when she's going to be down here in Rockland County. Uh, we've decided that uh, we, we're going to meet up and uh, and, and, and talk. So um, I'm very excited about that. I'm looking forward. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck. Okay, very good. And let's just switch gears for a second. Something back to the town of Ramapo that caught my eye. Very interesting vote coming up actually two days or three days after Rosh Hashanah. On September 30th, there's going to be a vote about switching the town of Ramapo's current makeup of the council. They're going to enlarge it. They want, there's a proposal to enlarge it by two seats to seven seats on the council, as well as to create a district or ward system whereby uh, everybody is elected from a specific district as opposed to representing the whole town. Some have said that this is a way to dilute the power of the Orthodox community. So where where do you stand on this issue? Well, look, it's uh, preserve Ramapo. You know, let's be very frank about it. It's preserve Ramapo is a, is a uh, movement in the town of Ramapo that had been trying for years to to gain uh, somewhat of a voice in in the town. Uh, they have lost um, every single election 
in the past, uh, I don't know how many years, uh, and uh, that has been a, uh, a huge uh, issue for them. Uh, so uh, they came up with this idea to uh, force a referendum on the ward system. And by way of ward system, certainly they will be able to uh, gain, gain uh, some seats on the town council. They had asked to put on the referendum also the six seats as opposed to four, because if it is divided into four, uh, I believe they still will not be able to gain a seat to the table. So uh, that is an issue that is going to be decided, uh, as you said, I think it's uh, Tuesday after Rosh Hashanah. Um, and, um, you know, the Preserve Ramapo folks feel very strong about this. They would like to have a seat at the table. Currently, they don't have a single uh, councilman or the town supervisor who has been supported by them or uh, been uh, represented by them, for them. Yeah, I guess I misspoke for a second. When I said seven seats, I meant the six seats plus the supervisor, which would be a total that, of seven, as opposed to the correct. four seats now plus the supervisor, which are currently a total of five. But actually a question I think would come to mind of most people, Preserve Ramapo, we understand, we've talked about them in the past uh, as a – group that has been has gained a reputation for being uh, an a, antagonist or an opponent of the Hasidic community. But are they Democrats? Are they Republicans? Are they both? Where do they fall in along the political spectrum? Based on the previous elections, they had uh, been uh, trying to win uh, a seat on the Democratic line. So when they used to try to run in, 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 in the town-wide elections, they used to try to run on the Democratic line. In fact, I believe, if I remember correctly, they did endorse teach-outs for, for, for governor. So uh, I think they fall on the Democratic side of, of, of the parties, if you look at it that way. And what, and what are the chances? How would you handicap this this? Uh referendum will the from community come out two days after Rosh Hashanah it is very difficult to tell it really is it's it's not only a question if the from community is going to come out it's, it's a question if preserve Rampo is going to come out they have at least uh, they, they they had in the past between six seven eight thousand votes um, and the question is if they will come out and vote then there's an issue where usually typically uh, when they used to run candidates uh, in, in the general election, uh, the town supervisor and the current town, town board used to uh, get elected by, um, by the typical uh, Democratic uh, voter who used to go down the line. And they didn't vote preserve Rampo, they voted Democratic. So the question is if these folks will come out to vote. Certainly I know that the uh, some community is going to come out to vote. Uh, there has always been... Uh, a little bit of a, you know, soft support in any election when it comes uh, between the holidays or right before Rosh Hashanah, right after Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but uh, people in the firm community see this as a very uh, important election, and it remains to be seen how the turnout will be. It's going to be really interesting to, to look at, and I'm sure lots of people are going to look very closely. I know there's an absentee ballot uh uh, program running, people trying to vote uh, absentee. Uh, so if they are not in town, especially lots of people who who go to Israel, and I think uh, some folks in from the server and pub, uh, um, um, group are also trying to uh, vote absentee. Those who are not in town, uh, so it's going to be very very interesting to see the outcome. Aaron, I know you're short on time. I want to ask you just one last question. Regards to this, how did they come up with picking the date of September 30th? Who picked that date to go well, ahead and have a referendum? Why didn't they do it on primary day? Well, this this has been something uh, that has been going back and forth for a long, long time. They had forced this referendum by way of petition. The town had tried to disqualify the petition, and it ended up, like most things, end up in the court system. 
and it, it has been something uh, uh, in the courts, I believe, for a year or two. And finally, the judge gave the order that the referendum has to take place, and the judge uh, specifically outlined the uh, the time frame that they have to come up with the referendum. And I believe that the primary date would not have qualified. There would have been a certain amount of time that people have to be notified, yet the judge ruled that they can't do it later than, than a certain amount of time. So uh, they only had a very small window of, of the time that the town had to adopt the date where this election will take place. In fact, it was the town that cho- chose this date, and it, it has done so under the uh, very strict rules of the judge. Okay, because I would imagine that pe- some, particularly activists in the Jewish community, would object to having a vote in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, just from my point of view uh, as well, that uh, there is also a referendum in the village of Bloomingburg. We've talked about that further up the highway uh, up in Sullivan County, where there's a there's a move to dissolve that village, at, at, which is viewed – that move is viewed as anti-Hasidic as well. And that's also scheduled on the 30th of September, which is in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, there's all kinds of controversy regarding that. Aaron Weeder, the majority leader of the Rockland County Legislature, thank you for joining us here. And good luck on future political endeavors. We hope to speak to you again in the very near future. Thank you very much, thank you, thank you very much, Michael. And I would like to wish you and all your listeners a Shana Tova and Lashana Tova to everyone, and may the future year be a much better day, year than the past year. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Kasiva Chesim Tova to you. Good bench to your Shana Tova. And this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman. BeckermanPR.com. Tell your story with Beckerman. And as I said, we're going to switch from the New York centric, which we've been for a couple of weeks. Just Hope you don't mind. Go a little national. We are proud to have back Ron Campius from the JTA, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, and responsible for coordinating coverage in the U.S. Capitol and analyzing political developments that affect the Jewish world. Ron wrote a piece on the decline from a high of 31 to expected 19 Jews in Congress this coming January with the departures of some political heavyweights. Ron, welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Ron, give it to us straight, the Jewish audience out there. Should we be in mourning about the decline of the Jewish member and especially the departure of some very big names, Eric Cantor, Henry Waxman, Berman? I mean, the list goes on of big Jewish uh, congressional potentates that are now leaving the scene. Well, not not quite in mourning. I mean, uh, the Jewish community still has excellent access to both parties in Congress. Uh, Rep- <clears throat> Republican uh, leadership is, is very interested in consulting with the pro-Israel community, the Jewish community on foreign policy issues, the, uh, the Democrats. And I, and I should say there are 31. Uh, it, went, it went down from 30 to 1 to 19 in the House. There are still 10 Jewish Democrats in the, um, in the Senate. But the... Um, uh, the issue is, though, I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain comfort. In the past, uh, uh, the Jewish community could go to, um, to, to people that were uh, mishpacha, and that's what they even call them at, at the APAC every four years at the Democratic National Convention. They have what they call a breakfast mishpacha, and they have the Jewish caucus there, and they talk to them, and there's a certain ease of access, and, and that's, uh, that's changing. There are um, fewer Jewish members in the House, and, uh, and, and it, it, it means that the, the access isn't guaranteed in the way it once was. So what do you attribute this phenomenon to? It's, it's just the decline of the Jewish Democrat. Clearly, it's, there's always been tough to elect Jewish Republicans. Once upon a time, I, we had uh, – there were a couple Jewish – we had two Jewish Republicans in the Senate as well as a very prominent, uh, as we all have spoken about at length, uh, a Jewish Republican in the House. So there's only been one. But uh, – but what do you attribute the decline of the Jewish Democrat at the same time to? I, I think part of it is that the uh, the just like you know the, the House is is based on districts, and uh, Jewish Democrats have traditionally come from districts where there have been, a, if not Jewish majorities, in like the New York and the Florida area, where there have been uh, a substantial uh, Jewish uh, minorities, and those are shrinking. There are just um, 
uh, you know, to, to show the difficulties of like being Jewish and being elected from an area where are, there aren't many that many Jews. There are only three in the current house. One of them, Eric Cantor, is going. The two others are uh, Steve Cohen from Memphis and um, John Yar- Yarmouth from Louisville, K- Kentucky. Uh, and, and so those those uh, those districts are, are I think are shrinking as uh, as Jewish Americans tend to disperse into the suburbs and. Um, you know, there are just as it, the, the Jewish American population is growing, but it's not not as concentrated as it once was in in certain areas. Uh, you know, which was the case definitely the case 40, 30 years ago. But did many of these Jewish Democrats or Jewish congressional people win by virtue of them being Jewish, as uh, with the Jews as a strong base, or they did it because they rose up through the ranks? of the party and they rose up and they became the next in line or they ran a really smart campaign or they were really good at fundraising. Was it uh, attributed to the tribalism or was it attributed to the tribal connections or was it attributed to the fact they were really good politicians? I think it was a combination. I mean, you know, they, they, a lot of the, um, a lot of the Jewish members who are still in Congress did come up through the Jewish community. People who are still in the leadership, Steve Israel, who's like the chief fundraiser for the uh, democratic, uh, you know, he heads the democratic reelection candidate. Campaign uh, for the House and Nita Lowy, who's the chief appropriator in the House. If you look at their biographies, they and 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 um, Shelley Berkeley, who was from Las Vegas a few years ago, they they came up to the Jewish community. But once they were in the Democratic Party, they were also very good at politicking, at forming alliances with uh, with non-Jewish members, obviously, and and advancing that way. But it's just partly like these, like you say, these giants are are aging out. You know, there there are the the, the the Waxmans who are going, the Carl Levins who are going, and even the ones who are staying, a lot of them are, are probably going to be going in the next few years. They're going to be retiring. You do have some some young up-and-comers. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who heads the Democratic National Committee. Ted Deutsch from Florida, who's just in a very few years already in a senior position on the Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, is very good at, um, at forging alliances with uh, with Republicans. The same thing goes for Elliot Engel, who's not as as young as Deutscher Wasserman Schultz, but also also known for uh, for advancing legislation with with Republicans. But there there, there are just fewer of them. And what do you see on the horizon? Uh, you see some people who can replace some of the influence. Clearly, if the Democrats remain in the minority in the House, uh, the influence will be diminished. Although you have ranking members, clearly uh, Elliot Engel being one. Uh, Nita Lowe being ranking on appropriations, uh, but you don't see a you know the same type of movement where by Jewish Democrats rise to senior levels of the leadership in the House. I, I just don't see the numbers right now. We'll see. I mean, there are if you look at state houses across the country, there are younger Jews being elected in states like and uh, like in uh, in Nevada and California. And there are younger Jewish Republicans being elected. A guy to watch is Dan Lederman in South Dakota, I think, who is, a, is in a leadership position in the, uh, in the lower house there. Uh, so, so, so we'll have to see. But it's, it's not happening the same way it used to happen, which is that they would come out of communities uh, where there were just simply, um, there were a lot of Jews. And like, you know, let's say in certain northeastern communities, if you're going to be elected, you probably either had to be Jewish or Irish or Italian. So like a third of the time... <laughs> You would be Jewish, but that's just happening less, I think, as Americans overall assimilate more and and disperse more. Very, very interesting. Just to, just, I want to pause for a second uh, with regard to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because as as just for the audience, she is the chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee. But a lot has been written about the fact that she has a very strained relationship with currently with the president, as mm-hmm. well as with uh, potentially the future nominee. Although we don't, I don't want to prognosticate on this point. Specifically, uh, Hillary Clinton, and many people feel that her days are numbered. Uh, you know, I'm not attributing that to her being Jewish or obviously Jewish, but what uh, what is it about Debbie Wasserman Schultz that seems to rub a lot of people in the party the wrong way? Well, according to the reporting, I guess I, I think you probably saw the same story I did in Politico today. I mean, part of it just has to see with the with the perception, at least, is portrayed by Politico that she is advancing her own career as much as she is advancing. Uh, the Democratic Party. I wouldn't put too much stock in, you know, the fact that she's probably not going to be in the uh, the chairwoman for much longer because she's been the chairwoman for a long time. She's been the chairwoman since 2011, and that's actually quite a run. And also, as the story noted, she does 
raised a lot of money uh, for the party. But, you know, that we're at, at that level, I think, of party politics in terms of who's raising money and who they're donating it to, who they're giving the money to, how they're sharing the money within the party, there are always going to be people who are their champions. Nancy Pelosi has always been a big Wasserman Schultz champion. She's the one who who boosted her, like, in her, just after her first term to, like, be a deputy whip in the House. And they're going to be the detractors. So um, I wouldn't count her out yet, that's for sure. Okay, very interesting. And I don't mind to, you know, specifically pick on her. It just happens to be <laughs> the the idea that she is but at the at the same time being the chairwoman, but out of favor with the White House. But uh, that can happen in the political world. But you anticipated my, my next question. We talked about fundraising because – there's no question that the Jewish community and Jewish Democrats are really important to the party when it comes to fundraising. And uh, I think Republican Jews are very important, uh, even though they are less in number, are very important to the Republican Party when it comes to fundraising. I imagine that that trend is going to continue, even if the numbers of of members and the, the ranks are not quite as swollen as they used to be. Oh, for sure. I think that both parties are going to continue uh... – uh, going to their uh, their Jewish donors, and they're going to be continued. They're going to continue to be conscious of uh, of what the Jewish base does. I think I, I mentioned it earlier. The Senate, uh, the Senate Democratic Caucus, once at, once a year has a behind the closed door meeting with the uh, uh, the leaders of the organized Jewish community, and that took place this year, and it was substantive. And it's going to, I'm sure, it's going to keep taking place. And uh, and you can also see it just in the um, uh, you know the, you know the, the Republican Jewish. Uh, Republican Jews like to joke about themselves. Oh, you know, once upon a time we could meet in the phone booth. Now it's a, a little bigger than a phone booth. But if you look at the Republican Jewish Coalition and the candidates that it attracts every four years to its, uh, its candidates forum, it gets all the major presidential candidates. They go out of their way to speak to that community. And of course, the same thing is true of um, Democrats. The National Jewish Democratic Council also attracts all the candidates because uh, the, this, the, the Jewish community. Is, uh, is, is has always been, has for decades at least been uh, designated one of the most philanthropic of, uh, of communities, one of the most willing to uh, uh, for its for its leaders, for its uh, its uh, fundraising leaders to put their money with their mouth where their mouth is, and that's why uh, I think that there'll still be a, a tendency among both parties to want to, uh, to to listen to the Jewish community. Sure, to say nothing of the fundraising prowess of members of APAC. Uh, but let's talk about the Senate for a second, because as you noted earlier, and I think appropriately, that you have a decline in the House, but the Senate, uh, one-tenth of the Senate is is Jewish or of Jewish, well, we'll, we'll put, uh, we'll just say Jewish. Uh, for So even though some might quibble with that designation, some people, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, what is it about the Jews that are able at the same time to win some of these statewide races in very improbable places. Uh, yeah, like I said, it, it, we, I think that they're just, uh, you know, they're talented politicians. They come up uh, through the ranks. And the, the reason I didn't write so much about the, the Senate in my story is that uh, if you talk to Jewish organizational leaders, the, the, the folks in the Senate, the Jewish folks in the Senate are not as responsive to uh, Jewish organ. I mean, they don't push them away. They don't try and hide the fact that they're Jewish. But they, and you see this across the board. They, I think senators see themselves as, as representing a much uh, broader constituency. They represent the whole state. House members represent Jewish districts, so they're the folks that you uh, you go to uh, when you you want Jewish issues. It's uh, the same as is not uh, not quite as true as, as of the Senate. But I, I think it just also stems from. Uh, a deep Jewish involvement in uh, in politicking. It comes from the the periods of activism of the 60s and 70s. It comes from the recognition, I think, for a lot of people that you had to be involved in politics if you wanted to change, whether that was on domestic issues like addressing poverty, like addressing women's rights, or whether it was on, on foreign policy issues like Soviet Jews and and Israel. And uh, and perhaps you're just not getting this, that same intensity of involvement now among among younger Jews, but uh, I've, that's definitely I think what what elevated uh, a lot of folks to the Senate. Joe Lieberman, you know, a great senator from Connecticut, came out of the uh, the civil rights uh, movement, and uh, and the same is true. And you know, Dianne Feinstein came out of uh, out of San Francisco politics because it was such an intense uh, political atmosphere. She and Barbara Boxer were both people who rose up through uh, the feminist movement, which had such a strong uh, Jewish component, and perhaps that's just not as intense now as it was then.
Really, and what about the idea that you have replacing a Frank Lautenberg with a Cory Booker, right? Who is a, I think by all accounts, a Judeophile. Uh, yeah. In, anyway, in fact, they say he's amongst the most Jewishly knowledgeable members of Congress. Clearly somebody who has a deep uh, connection with the Jewish people. Uh, what is that? Is the Jewish, uh, I, I, do you lose anything? I, I guess Frank Lautenberg is a, is a great example of somebody who has had deep involvement with the Jewish community. Uh, he was a Federation leader, a leader on so many issues involving the Jewish community. And you replace him with a Cory Booker. Uh, clearly not Jewish, but yet, uh, but yet somebody who has a lot, a considerable amount of Jewish, uh, connection. Uh, do you, as an observer of Congress, is there, is there a difference? Is there something you could put your finger on in that, in that kind of transition? I think that, um, I, I think that younger politicians in general, I think younger communities in general have, have looked to the Jewish community in the, in the United States over the last few decades. With a, with a degree of admiration, in some cases envy, in some cases admiration, because of its, of its political involvement, in, 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 a, in a way wanting to emulate it. And if you look at Cory Booker's uh, biography, uh, you know, he was uh, at Oxford, he met Shmuley Boteach, and he, uh, he was attracted to that, uh, that level of activism. And, and it, it just makes sense, because if, if you want to be activist, you look to the, uh, the communities that have successfully been activist and the and and you look to them for mentoring you look to them for uh, to, to analyze them and I think maybe that's what you know that's what attracted him to understanding uh, Judaism I don't know if there's anything lost so much when a Cory Booker gets uh, elected I think that there's still the the close and affectionate relationship with the Jewish community look Frank Lautenberg is another person who did come up uh, through the professional Jewish community he was a uh, uh, he chaired um, the equivalent of the Jewish Federation of North America in the 1970s. He was a major donor. So, you know, you lose that kind of person who's had that kind of involvement, but uh, I, I don't think it's such a, um, it's, it's a, of course, it's a great loss if Frank Lautenberg has passed away, but I, I, I don't think that there's a, a lot to worry about when he's replaced by somebody in there, like Cory Booker, who has such a close relationship with the Jewish community. So is it purely about relationships and access or, because uh, just getting back to something you said in the beginning, the mishpacha or feeling it in the kishkas, as they say, and I hate to be so borscht about the way we're talking about this, <laughs> but, you know, some people will say, well, you know, you don't have to come to me on anything if you're, you know, lobbying on behalf of Israel or Jewish issues, uh, or on Iran or something like that, because I know it on my own. I think that's, uh, you know, that's always famous Chuck Schumer line. You know, I'm the Schumer and that's why I'm here. Uh, right. it, it, sometimes, you don't have that, although I think that, and this is kind of where I'm getting at, uh, many of the more conservative members of Congress or of the Senate, like it's Ted Cruz, will say, well, you know, it's for me, that's all what I'm about. In fact, last week, he, he very famously, we talked about it last week, uh, you know, walked out of a, uh, of a, uh, defense of Christians dinner in order to say, if you won't stand with Israel, I won't stand with you. And that's a pretty big statement from somebody who is not Jewish, right? I think you know what's what's lost to a degree. And I, you know, when I was talking about Cory Booker, I was talking about people who have been so close to the Jewish community that it almost doesn't matter whether they're Jewish or not. But more broadly, it's I think what's what's lost. If you look especially at let's say the more conservative Republicans that are coming up now, that are very 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 friendly to Israel, that uh, really feel very pro-Israel. You do have a gap there in that the pro-Israel community, for instance, has always been in favor of uh, foreign policy funding for a uh, just overall uh, foreign assistance to countries overseas, not just for Israel, for other countries, and for a range of reasons. They don't want there to be a situation in the United States where the United States is only assisting Israel. They don't think that that's good for the Jews. They also think that it helps the United States to cultivate relations with, with countries around the world. They think that that's good for Israel as well. Uh, and then you have these, uh, these folks who are coming, and this, you know, this was a question in 2010 when they were coming up. I spoke to Eric Cantor about it then. I said, what do you do? Uh, how do you talk to these people who say they want to cut foreign funding? How do you persuade them not to cut uh, foreign funding? And, you know, he said, and people in APAC told me, and other people told me, well, we educate them. And the fact is that they haven't 
managed to educate them in the last few years. These people are still very much for uh, for cutting foreign assistance. They want to uh, to, to be friends with the uh, with the Jewish community, but they want to be friends with the Jewish community very much on their own terms. And they and they uh, you know not to use too harsh a word, they're kind of tone deaf to the uh, to the subtler uh, issues. And I think that that's that's the case for sure on on domestic issues as well, like funding for the uh, the social safety net, which is a uh, what a um, a lot of uh, Jewish voters and a lot of Jewish organizations uh, get behind, and they're concerned about the, um, uh, the a lot of the budget cuts that um, a Republican Congress would probably um, bring about. So it's it's that kind of uh, uh, access, that kind of day-to-day understanding of not just the broader issues of being pro-Israel, but how one goes about being pro-Israel or how one goes about uh, helping older communities, for instance, that uh, might be lost. Okay, and we're talking to Ron Campias from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the JTA. We're talking about the decline of the Jewish member, congressional member, Jewish congressman or congresswoman, if you will. Uh, which, Ron, just getting towards the end of the segment, so I just want to know, which of the retiring big names, the Howard Berman, Henry Waxman, Eric Cantor, will be felt the most. Uh, Eric Cantor for other reasons, but I'm saying uh, clearly that's a bigger earthquake politically. But which of those three, or maybe there's another name that I'm missing, will be felt the most in their departure vis-a-vis the Jewish community? I think Henry Waxman. I think he's going to be felt the most. I mean, Henry Waxman and Eric Cantor both for for uh, for different reasons. Uh Eric Cantor, because as you've mentioned, he is the, he was the only Jewish Republican in Congress. He was a leader. He was the majority leader. Uh, he even if there were issues in which he disagreed with the organized Jewish community on on uh, on domestic spending, on spending for Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, he at least was uh, was sensitive to their overtures and would hear them out and would try and find out ways to moderate one or the other uh, proposal uh, in order to save certain programs that were. Uh, Cherished by the Jewish community, Henry Waxman, because like he is just a, he's he was the most senior. He was not only the most senior um, Jewish member of Congress, being elected in 1974, but he was just very aware of uh, of Jewish issues, deeply steeped in them, deeply familiar with the Jewish community. The next person, most senior one is Sander Levin. He doesn't have that. He's Jewish. He has a relationship with the Jewish community. He doesn't have the depth of the relationship. Uh, uh, that Henry Waxman had. I mean, Henry Waxman was the unofficial chair of the Jewish caucus. He would, there is no real Jewish caucus there, and that's a deliberate decision. They don't, they don't want to have an official Jewish caucus. But to the degree that they would get together, he was the one who would convene the meetings, convene the meetings, let's say, with the ambassador to Israel, convene the meetings with John Kerry so that they would be updated. And, you know, the interesting thing is that there's no natural successor. I mean, supposedly it's Sander Levin because he's next in seniority, but nobody really knows if Sander Levin even wants to do it. And so there, practically, you're going to have that missing. Who's going to actually be uh, calling around the Jewish members saying, hey, we ought to get together and, and talk about such, such an issue? Did Eric Cantor go to those meetings when they had them unofficially? Or he, as a Republican, he, he was he kind did. of out? He did. He absolutely he did. did some of them, for sure, yeah. For, especially and, the ones and having why? to do with Israel. And I've actually always wondered, why is there no Jewish caucus? Why did they make that decision that there should be no Jewish caucus? I think they just didn't want, you know, it's the old Jewish thing. They don't, they didn't want to, uh, even though some of them were elected from Jewish districts, even though some of them championed Jewish causes, even though some of them are proudly pro-Israel, they didn't want it ever getting, you know, they, they didn't ever want to feed the notion that they were there strictly because they, they wanted to advance Jewish cause, causes. And it's, you know, it's interesting. It says something interesting about the Jews in the United States. There's a congressional black caucus. There's a Hispanic caucus. There's absolutely no self-consciousness among those members that they're being exclusivist. But uh, because of the kinds of attacks that uh, that Jews have drawn over the centuries, there is that sensitivity among Jewish members. So they they have to walk a fine line. Very, very interesting. I guess we'll have to delve into that because actually, even the last couple of years, I know the New York City Council created a Jewish caucus. The New York State Assembly also created a Jewish caucus, although I'm not sure how official that is as a Jewish caucus might just be like more of an association, but uh, definitely something to consider uh, subconsciously or maybe psychologically as far as that uh, that Jewish uh, identity thing amongst uh, members of different legislators, legislatures. 
Uh, Ron Campius from JTA, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class and a very informative segment. Thank you. And this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. Tell your story with Beckerman. And we have on the line Shane Goldmacher. We're going to go from talking about mostly Democrats because that's the Jewish legislators, are mostly Democrats in Washington. Uh, we are going to now switch gears and talk a little bit about Republicans and Republican courtship of by presidential wannabes of the Jewish community, particularly in the Orthodox Jewish community. And we have Shane Goldmacher from the National Journal, who wrote earlier in the summer, but we were off for a couple of weeks, about Rand Paul's Jewish charm offensive. Shane, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, uh, Shane, I'll ask you first and foremost, how did you come upon this story? Uh, you know, I've been covering Paul and some of his activities for a few months, and uh, in particular his outreach to wealthy donors, uh, which is very much what he's been doing uh, anytime he's not in public for, for the entire year. And over and over and over I kept hearing about uh, meetings he was setting up, conference calls he was having, basically every time he could fit it in, efforts to reach out to Jewish Republicans and, and the pro-Israel community. Uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is there's a, a lot of fundraising potential as a Republican presidential candidate there. And probably the bigger reason is the, the legacy of his father, who was viewed really hostily by most folks in that community. And, you know, he really doesn't want to be uh, considered a, a person that they can't embrace or can't possibly accept as a Republican presidential nominee. And so he's been working overtime to, uh, you know, make a first impression a second time. Yeah, and just to bring that irony out a little bit of the of the whole story is, and if you if the people out there are not familiar, Ron Paul, longtime member of Congress, a libertarian isolationist type who never who did, certainly did not believe in foreign aid or foreign wars or foreign intervention, and was generally regarded as being hostile to Israel. I think kind of if you have on the Republican side the you know kind of anti-Israel pictures, you'd have kind of Pat Buchanan, James Baker, and Ron Paul there up on the wall together. Um, but uh, at least, you know, from those are three names that stick out. But I guess, was it the idea that, that Shane, that you kind of saw that, oh, here's Rand Paul, he went to visit the yeshiva. And uh, how interesting is that? What is he doing, you know, going ahead, and this would not seem to be his base. That's not really the type of voter necessarily that Rand Paul has been trying to appeal to as a Republican. Yeah, and you know he's visited a yeshiva in New Jersey, and the, the person who helped bring him there, Richard Roberts, is a particular important figure in terms of helping introduce them to the Jewish community. But it's far more than that. I mean, he went on a big trip to Israel at the beginning of 2013 with a large group of of Republican donors, of uh, Republican sort of political connectors, and he uh, you know took a much harder line on on Israel issues during the trip and after the trip. And in fact, he's actually been in a tiff with the Washington Post this week about documenting all his shifting positions since he came to the Senate, saying, look, he hasn't changed his position on Israel. Um, that's just not true. When he first got to the Senate, he uh, was advocating for cutting foreign aid to every country, uh, and Israel was included. He made that clear. And, and today he's saying, uh, you know, singing a different tune as he's uh, laying the groundwork to run for president. So let, let's broaden the discussion for a second with regard to – you. you pointed out correctly that Republican presidential candidates are going after Jewish donors. I don't think there's any mm -hmm. secret about that. But there's one donor in particular that there always seems to be a sweepstakes for, and that is Sheldon Adelson. And I think there has been a beauty contest, if you will, at this the winter meeting of the Republican Jewish Coalition held in uh, Las every, Vegas. Every major Republican, almost every major Republican in the country flew, flew down to Las Vegas and gave a, a speech that they thought he would like, uh, you know, not all except for successful. except for Chris Christie. They didn't like yeah, Chris, Chris Christie <laughs> didn't stumbled over himself a little bit, and then later apologized in private. But the idea that you know one donor, who was of course the largest single spender uh, in the 2012 elections, he's quite a draw, and he's uh, an important figure for somebody like Rand Paul. Well, the reality is that that very few people think that Sheldon Adelson is ever going to be a Rand Paul supporter, and I, I'd put in the uh, in that same category is a very influential Republican, Paul Singer, uh, a New York hedge fund guy. You know, he similarly, there's very little likelihood that he's going to be a full Rand Paul person. 
So Rand Paul's goal here is not necessarily to loosen Adelson's wallet for a $10 million check to a super PAC. It's to make sure that if the contest comes down to him and one other guy, that they're not determined to beat him because the math is just overwhelming. I mean, the amount of money you have to raise every week, it's like $100,000, $200,000 every week for the next two years just to equal the amount of money that, that Paul Singer or Sheldon Adelson can cut in a single check. And so that gives them outsized power, outsized influence. And frankly, uh, it makes it so everybody, again, takes a little parade down to Las Vegas when he's holding an event and uh, try to bend his ear a little bit. That's really incredible when you think about it, $100,000 a week. So you really have to spend so much time with people who write those huge checks. Uh, Yeah, 52 weeks in a year. (laughs) You know, it's just like, you know, and again, there are limits. so, So no candidate can collect that size of money directly from these folks. But in the super PAC era in which he spent, you know, $100 million in super PACs in 2012, you can't compete with that, even with Obama-sized small donors. Uh, it has the ability to swamp your messaging. And so those handful of people in the country who have those resources, A, and frankly, more important, B, are shown a willingness to spend it, have a great deal of influence on the process. So what outside of Sheldon Adelson and I guess the Rich Roberts and those specific people, what has been the reception uh, amongst Republican activists, Republican Jewish activists for Rand Paul? Well, I think you sort of want to make a, a differentiation between activists and, and donor class. Uh, you oh, know, fair he's enough. Working really hard with the Republican Jewish Coalition, which is this sort of collection of generally wealthier Republicans. Uh, who are in the Jewish community, pro-Israel, and he's worked really, really hard to, to court that organization, their board of directors. Uh, basically, if he's traveling to, to a different part of the country, if there's somebody from that uh, group in the area, he's going to try to meet with them. And he's had a lot of success, again, not necessarily in turning these people into full-throated supporters, but in turning them from people who viewed, as you described, his father as hostile to Israel, to listening to Rand Paul and saying, well, He's not his father, and frankly, that's a, a pretty big leap. Uh, we mentioned Richard Roberts, who, who actually has worked with Adelson on some of his political projects before. Uh, he told me for this story, Rand Paul's father, Ron, is clearly anti-Semitic. Uh, but as far as uh, Rand is concerned, he, he ended up liking him. They were in uh, Israel together, and, and Roberts told me the fun story. Uh, that uh, was on the Sabbath, and he organized this group dinner, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're, there's dancing going on. He says, you know, third or fourth song, he's got his arm around Rand Paul, and he says, he whispered in his ear, if your father could only see you now. Uh, you know, it, it's really this sharp contrast that, that Paul the Younger really wants to draw from his father, and within the people that he gets to sit down with, he's making an impression. Now, again, are they going to be his biggest supporters? Probably not, uh, but he may not need them to be the biggest ones. He needs them not to be his biggest opponents. We're talking to Shane Goldmacher of the National Journal, wrote a very fascinating piece earlier in the summer about Rand Paul's Jewish charm offensive. And now, as you said, once you peel back the, okay, I'm not my father, and I'm Rand Paul, I'm my own person, so then there's size up Rand Paul himself. Let's size up Rand Paul as a candidate, and why would Rand Paul be one who would appeal to Jewish Republicans uh, because he's generally considered to be uh, he's not establishment and many of the Jewish Republicans mm-hmm. are very establishment. Uh, he is not necessarily wildly uh, in the pro-Israel camp and the Allah Ted Cruz uh, that you would that you would say uh, he's not necessarily a hardcore evangelical. Um, mm-hmm. And so just where does he fit in if you have to look at the constellation of Republican candidates that some of these big donors are evaluating? I think it's all about Israel, and Israel not just as an issue in its own right, uh, but as a signal issue to that, that broader Republican establishment in the Jewish community that you're mentioning. The issue of Israel for him is basically a signal that says, I'm actually in the mainstream. I'm not a fringe candidate. I can be president. And he brings it up over and over again. He gave a long speech just today on the Senate floor talking about Syria and Iraq. And one of the ways in which he framed the debate, again, he's against arming the sort of more moderate Syrian rebels. He said, look, who knows whose hands those weapons are going to get into. They could be turned against us 
or Israel. Everything's sort of focused on that. And, and the goal for him in reaching out to the, the Jewish Republican community and the, the, the most hawkish pro-Israel folks across the foreign policy spectrum is to convince them that because he can handle this issue in a way that they feel like perhaps they can trust, he can be ha- trusted on other bigger foreign policy issues all across the world. Uh, and that that's what this is so important. It doesn't just speak to this community, but by speaking to this community, he's able to try to sell his message of, as you describe it, uh, less hawkish. You know, he doesn't like the word isolationist, very strongly opposes it, but non-interventionist policies and sell that to the broader public. But in order to get to that selling point, he needs to convince the establishment, the sort of media elite, the foreign policy elite, that he's a legitimate candidate and that he's not out of the mainstream. So let's take that for a second. Uh, with regard to his feuding specifically with John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are senators kind mm-hmm. of known, I think really known as the activist interventionist wing of the Republican Party, kind of in the Jewish tradition of, of, of want of a muscular foreign policy, which can, you could say that it's a little bit on the decline these days of that. But maybe they carry on that that muscular foreign policy tradition. He has feuded quite significantly with John McCain uh, to the extent that I think he repeated this I, this hoax that John McCain had met with ISIS, and they've been feuding about foreign policy for for quite some time. Uh, we're it's kind of interesting now. So he wants the Rand Paul's in the mainstream, but yet he's kind of he, he's going ahead and feuding with those that are really supported by the Jewish establishment people or the more establishment Republicans? Yeah, the John McCain-Rand Paul feud is, is really very, very public. And it, again, it happened just today on the Senate floor. They gave dueling speeches about this, and Lindsey Graham as well. Um, when you look at who talks about what on the Senate floor, uh, which is, of course, one of the best megaphones they have on a regular basis, um, I did a little search for who says the word Israel most, and, and number one was Ted Cruz. Uh, you know, n- number three was Marco Rubio, number four was Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham was uh, rounding up those top four folks. This is sort of a thing that they're focusing on. But yeah, he absolutely is uh, in regular and loud disagreement with John McCain. And it, if there are people in, in the pro-Israel community who take their cues from John McCain, they're not gonna—they're not gonna be Rand Paul fans. And actually, just sort of reading and watching some of the speeches that they gave today, you really gotta wonder if you know John McCain's foreign policy postures a whole lot closer to Hillary Clinton's than it is to Rand Paul's. Oh, that there's a provocative statement for a lot of Republicans. I think is no question. Well, I guess along the continuum, you have to, you do have to wonder, but I guess, I mean, one she, of the, she comes, she yeah. comes pretty far right among the democratic, uh, you know, the democratic foreign policy world, you know, and, and just on those issues, you, you know, if you listen to this to them, obviously she, she couches it differently, but you know, who's closer to John McCain, you know, I would be hard to say on a lot of those things. And I think that, uh, you know, Rand Paul would welcome some of that, maybe not on the issue of Israel, but he'd welcome some of that uh, comparison. And he says, you know, if you want a real choice, uh, you know, put me against Hillary Clinton, we're going to completely flip the debate. Again, the Republican would be less likely to want to get involved in foreign issues abroad. Uh, you know, if you sort of take it from the point of he looks at everything that happens and says, you know, give me a really good reason we need to be involved in any way. And the the other point of view, even within the Republican Party, Marco Rubio gave a big speech about foreign policy yesterday. And listening to that, ever since he approaches this as, you know, give me a reason why America shouldn't get involved. That, you know, we're the world's leaders. We need to set the tone and that the world's a safer place and we're a big, strong, and involved country. Yeah, that, that I was just going to ask you about that speech and specifically. But just I want to get back to one follow-up with Rand yeah. Paul because I potentially this speaks to – who is surrounding him and who is giving him advice on these issues, not specifically Jewish issues, but on foreign policy. He's not necessarily known as a – hasn't been known as a foreign policy aficionado, uh, and that has not really been his bailiwick within the Senate. But when you repeat something that John McCain went and met with ISIS because it, he saw it or somebody in the staff saw it in a Hezbollah newspaper or – which it just kind of speaks to, is there somebody on his staff that's not doing a good job? Does he not have people around him who understand foreign policy? They don't understand the Middle East. What is, where's the disconnect there? Why would you, as a U.S. senator, make that kind of error? 
you know, I haven't paid close attention to that issue, so I, I don't know that much about that. But I do know he hasn't been, you know, he hasn't, as you said, been that closely associated with foreign policy. He just got a seat on the Foreign Relations Committee last year. Uh, and, you know, he stresses all the time that it is an evolving issue for him. Uh, and I think as it gets closer and closer to 2016, you're going to see him evolving more and more away from his father and toward what he sees as a, a stable political place. Um, he cites a lot of people who give him advice. Um, Dimitri Symes, the president of the Center for the National Interest, is one. Lauren Craner is a former Bush administration official, and uh, former ambassador Richard Burt are sort of the three that he's dropped regularly when I've spoken to him and brought this up. Um, but, yeah, he likes to say he was just a doctor a few years ago, uh, and, uh, you know, he's still developing some of his worldview on these issues. And, again, that's sort of the interesting thing, as he said, I haven't changed my mind on Israel I haven't changed my mind on a lot of things on foreign aid. It's like, well, the truth is, you look at it, it looks very much like he has, and so sometimes he wants to talk about how he's evolving and, you know, willing to change his positions, and at other times he says, you know, I've been steadfast. So it's, it's hard to keep up with some of that stuff. Is there, a, is there a sense that you get from that as far as his operation not being ready from prime time? As opposed to, although, you know, it's hard to see right now in the wide open Republican field which Republican is on the primetime list. So maybe for a second, kind of handicap where the different Republican contenders are vis-a-vis some of these big foreign policy issues. I imagine John McCain is not running again. I think I think that's a pretty safe bet. I mean, you look at a lot of the candidates uh, are potentially governors. Again, these are folks who probably don't have almost any foreign policy experience. Uh, you know, there's been stories that Chris Christie's been boning up on foreign policy because he's not that familiar with a lot of these issues. I'm sure that if he wins re-election, Scott Walker's going to be doing the same thing. Other sort of Midwestern governors who are Republicans eyeing the, the White House, John Kasich in Ohio, Mike Pence. You know, Mike Pence and Kasich both served in Congress, so they have had some dabbling in foreign policy. But this is kind of a conundrum for the Republican Party in general. A lot of folks like to point out and say, hey, you know, Barack Obama came into office a one-term senator. He didn't know enough of what he was doing, and look what happened. And yet the Republicans in the Senate who are looking at the White House, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, guess what? They're all one-term U.S. senators. Uh, and so it's not that easy to sort of make that case that you're going to be the expert. Um, you know, Paul, again, got a seat on the Foreign Relations Committee last year. Um, Marco Rubio uh, speaks pretty pretty strongly on, on the hawkish wing of the party. Uh, and Ted Cruz has not been a foreign policy person in his career, but, you know, anyone who's followed Ted Cruz knows he's, a, you know, among the smarter people in the Senate. Uh, and I'm sure he's going to be able to, to bone up and learn the basics and, and the specifics of, of how to sell it. Um, you know, but, but that said, yeah, the Republican field writ large, you know, no one has the sort of political or foreign policy gravitas that, that a former secretary of state like Hillary Clinton is going to have at least at the very beginning of a race. Amazing. And Shane, last question for you as we have to close out this segment, but I, I really think that this has got going to be, a, you know, the courtship of the Jewish mega donor is certainly going to continue uh, over time. And, you know, the story is not going to just be about Rand Paul, but it's going to be about others. But it, just on the as a Paulista or as a who who is the Jewish Paulista? If you had to say, uh, if you had to take one and say this is Rand Paul's guy, he is the conduit to the Jewish community. I you know I think he's got a couple of folks. Uh, one of them is, is that is that donor we mentioned, Richard Roberts. Uh, again, is he, he is he be, is he signed up with with? Rand Paul for None of these folks have officially signed up with anybody, right? They all would like to be courted by everybody. Um, another person who's been uh, playing a pretty important role is Mallory Factor, who's a, a sort of a pundit and a guy who organized uh, political meetings in New York and now in South Carolina, again, an early important state. And he's been helping introduce Paul to, to Jewish Republicans all across the country. Um, you know, Mallory, similar to these other folks, he's not signed on to a Paul presidential run, but he's very much in his inner circle of raising money for his, you know, Senate campaign that everybody who pays any attention expects to become a presidential run. So I'd put those two among the key figures. And then you know, Doug Stafford is his uh, chief political strategist, and he's probably the most important person because he's got his hands in everything that Rand Paul does politically. But within the Jewish community itself, I think Roberts is particularly important. And one other figure sort of uh, is Nate Siegel, who's a rabbi in Staten Island. And uh, you know, he's actually the person who introduced Paul to Richard Roberts, and he's uh, 
sort of been joked about as Rush Limbaugh's rabbi as well, and sort of behind the scenes with uh, religious leaders more than just the, the wealthy political community, he's played a role as well. I should say that Nate Siegel is the brother. We are on the Nachum Siegel Network. Nate Siegel being the brother of Nachum Siegel. So uh, I, I, we'll I end off you might with point that. that out. <laughs> yes, uh, life is, uh, particularly in the Jewish community, is always made up of mishpacha. So uh, anyway, Shane Goldmacher from National Journal, thanks for joining us. A great story. Really appreciate coming on. And uh, as the presidential sweepstakes go forward, we would hope to have you back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on again. This is Spin Class, and we are wrapping up another Thursday night, but not without doing our knucklehead of the week. One of the most shocking nuggets of news that I have heard was a the city council of New York it did interviews for board of elections commissioners. Normally, board of election commissioners are picked, solely picked by the political party, by the political chairman of that county. It's a really known as a very corrupt and opaque and back fill, smoke filled back room type of thing. But one of the candidates was actually interviewed at a city council hearing and he, where he talked about the board of elections in New York City and he said something which I find to be so shocking that I have to talk about it. He says, we give out social security numbers and names of addresses and telephone numbers of people. And I think that's a major, major problem. And this was said by Alan Shulkin in the, as a Manhattan potential commissioner. And, uh, duh, we give out the social security numbers of people. We think that might be a problem. Well, why are you doing it? It's incredible. That's our knucklehead of the week. Thanks for joining us here on spin class. We're going to be off for a couple of weeks because of Yontif. So we will be back right in the swing of election season. See you then on the Nachum Siegel Network.